Okay, welcome to Haunt and Cold, episode two. Yep. <laughs> I'm Katie. I'm April. And we're your hosts, so you're welcome. <laughs> oh, yikes. We're two for two. This is the scenario we're in. Yep. Uh, we're doing it again. We're doing it again. We're driving. We're on our way to the haunted location that is unknown to me, and I am going to tell my story on the way. So, sorry. There's construction. I thought you said sorry for oh. her stories. <laughs> no, I just didn't want them to think I was farting or something. <laughs> okay. Uh, sorry that I have to tell my story. But you know what I was thinking is, uh, how are you? Maybe people care. They don't. But I'm fine. <laughs> You're fine? I mean, sure, yeah. Okay, that's good. Because I, I thought about it today. I was like, I haven't seen you in two weeks. Yeah, since we did this. Since last we did time. this. Uh, life's life, I guess. Busy. Yeah. Working, mom. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> Same. We're not good at this. We don't ask each other <laughs> how we are. No, it's. Oh, wait. Remember the whole item thing? Yeah. I got one for you. It's dirty. Yeah. Is this supposed to be? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know if you were like giving you dirty laundry. Yeah. You're like, so this is my t shirt. Okay. Yeah. So, any thoughts about it? Um, where we might be going. It kind of smells like gas. Does it? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. No? I really just went and rolled it in some dirt. I guess uh, it just... It smells like gasoline. Smell it. Oh yeah, it kind of does. What dirt are you <laughs> rubbing it in? Was it at the gas station? No, it was in the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Okay, but it's a white v-neck. Dirty. Size medium. Size medium. I like it. Cool. We'll wash it later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Last episode, I realized that we briefly explained that we're doing these stories based in Utah. Yeah. All of our stories, at least for now, are going to be all based in Utah. Locals, you'll know where, what we're talking about, probably. But yeah, look it up. Yep. It's in Utah. Yeah. Okay. So go ahead. Okay. On February 12th, 2007, at 6.42 p.m., Solomon Tolovic arrived at Trolley Square Mall. He was wearing a white t-shirt, a tan trench coat, as well as carrying a six-shot, 12-gauge pump-action shotgun with a pistol-grip 38 caliber handgun with a backpack full of extra ammunition. Uh, this is in the evening, right? You said six? Some, yep. Okay. Around dinner time. He parked his car in the upper level of the mall's west parking garage. Two minutes after exiting his vehicle, he encountered 52-year-old Jeffrey Walker and his 16-year-old son, Alan. He shot and wounded both in the head with his shotgun. Oh my gosh. Alan managed to run down a staircase to a lower parking level where he was helped by some people. Um, Talavik stood over... Jeffrey, who had fallen to the ground after being shot, and shot him repeatedly in the head and back, killing him. Immediately, immediately just goes from nothing to total chaos. And I think oh. the scary thing is, is that he went over to him, stood over him, and shot him more. Yeah. So I feel like there was some dark, angry something in this kid's heart. Tolovic went over to the west entrance of the mall shot 34-year-old Sean Munns twice with the shotgun from 30 yards away. Sean managed to run toward what was then the Hard Rock Cafe, where he alerted others to a shooter um, and had them lock the doors. So he he got away and helped others, wow. which 
could have possibly potentially saved a bunch of other people. Yeah. When he fired twice at the entrance doors, causing shoppers inside to run and hide, he fired at a security guard, missed, and then walked down the west stairs to the main level in the opposite direction. Um, he shot 29-year-old Vanessa Quinn in the chest with his revolver. When she fell to the ground, Talavik stood over her and killed her with a second shotgun wound to the head. What is this guy's problem? Oh yeah. my goodness. Talavik then entered a card store called Cabin Fever, where seven people were hiding. He approached 44-year-old Carolyn Tuft, who was crouched down near a display table at the front of the store and shot her in the left side and arm with the shotgun, causing her to fall to the ground. He spotted 53-year-old Stacy Hansen crouching near the southeast blast wall of the store. Stacy told him everyone just wants to go home, and Talavik told him to shut up before shooting and injuring him in the lower abdomen and arm with the shotgun. Shattering the glass wall, Stacy fell face down onto the glass. Wow. He's just angry. Yeah, and there's no stopping him. Right. Talavik approached a group of three people, 15-year-old Kirsten Hinkley. Her mother was Carolyn Tuft, who was just at the front of the store where he shot her in the side. 24-year-old Brad France and 29-year-old Teresa Ellis. All three were lying on the floor in the southern front of the store. Talavik fired his shotgun, hitting all three of them. Brad France died from the gunfire with a shot wound to the forehead. Kirsten Hinkley, who is 15, was injured by a gunshot to the torso, and Teresa was injured in the right arm, torso, and leg. He then left the store to reload. During that time, Carolyn crawled to her daughter, but when he returned, he shot Carolyn, Kirsten, and Teresa again, in which Kirsten and Teresa didn't make it but Carolyn survived. When Talavik left the Cabin Fever store a second time, he approached an off-duty police officer, Kenneth Hammond, of the Ogden City Police Department. Uh, Kenneth was there with his pregnant wife, Sarita, who, she was a 911 dispatcher, and they were on a dinner date for Valentine's Day. They heard the gunshots, and so Sarita borrowed a waiter's cell phone and dialed 911. Kenneth, being the police officer, he drew his weapon to Talavik, identified himself as a police officer, and Talavik fired twice at him with his shotgun, but missed. Whoa. Yeah, I think he was hiding behind, like, a brick pillar. Okay. And one of the standby, or the... Bystanders? Bystanders, yeah. They were saying that the police officer, Kenneth, was hiding behind one of those pillars, and when he would fire the shotgun, he would he could hear all the pellets from the shotgun shattering across the brick. It was wow. probably something he, like hears in his mind. Oh, yeah. Time. Moving around the central hallway area, Talavik shot at three restaurant employees firing from near the south entrance of the Pottery Barn. Barrett Dodds, an employee, saw him returning to the Cabin Fever and shooting Stacy Hansen in the back. So he would, like, leave the Cabin Fever mm-hmm. after shooting people, going back and, like, finishing what he started type of thing. That is sick. In my head, I'm wondering if he's just seeing red and not thinking straight, but the fact that he remembers every person that he shot that probably wasn't dead, dead. yeah, and then went back for them, that makes me feel like he knew exactly what he was doing. You know? Like, it wasn't just like a, a lunatic he methodical. Yeah, he had intentions. He wanted, he wanted to kill. Like, that's, yes. well, that was his goal. Wow. Barrett Dodds, he saw him going back to Cabin Fever and shooting Stacy Hansen again. He yelled at him, 
and prompted Talavik to walk back to the pottery barn. Uh, luckily, Stacy survived his injuries. Meanwhile, Sergeant Andrew Oblid of the Salt Lake City Police Department entered Trolley Square through the south entrance and encountered Kenneth Hammond, so the off-duty Ogden police officer. Talavik fired at both officers and Hammond fired back in return. An active shooter contact team composed of Salt Lake City SWAT team members Sergeant Joshua Sharman, Detective Dustin Marshall, Detective Brent Olson, and Officer Gordon Warzencroft eventually arrived and confronted Talavik from behind. Sharman and Olson shot him a total of eight times in the back with their Heckler and Kosh MP5 service weapons. And Marshall also shot him five times with his AR-15 service rifle. When Talavik turned around and aimed his gun towards the team, Sharman and Olsen fired again and killed him. Talavik's body was later found to have been struck by a total of 15 times by bullets fired by police. Wow. At least 30 rounds were fired by Talavik. Uh, 29 of them came from his shotgun, at least one from his revolver. The entire shooting lasted for six minutes. Thinking about it, like, just this me telling it, right? only been talking for six minutes i know and that's how long it took him to just totally wreak havoc on these people but also it was six minutes from the time someone dialed 911 the first time to the time he, he was killed by so not even from the first shot right oh it was the first 911 call which i believe was from this could be wrong so don't quote me but <laughs> this could be a call from alan going down Oh, on the parking garage. Yeah. He went down and he said he went and hid, but people saw him bleeding, so they probably called 911. According to local TV station KTVX, several witnesses reported that most of the shooting took place on the ground floor near the Pottery Barn store, though the majority of the dead and injured were found inside cabin fever. The wounded victims were transported to local hospitals, some in critical condition. Oh, I should have said, I got a lot of this from Wikipedia and the Salt Lake Tribune. Some of them were, um, like, KUTV, like, news articles. news articles and whatnot. Kind of a mixture of all of them. So the list of victims <laughs> killed Jeffrey Walker, 53, Vanessa Quinn, 29, Brad France, 24, Kirsten Hinckley, 15, Teresa Ellis, 29. Among the injured were Alan Walker, 16, Sean Munns, 34, Carolyn Tuft, 43, and Stacy Hansen, 53. So, a little bit about Suleiman Talavik. He was born October 6, 1988, born in Kurska, a town in Bosnia, and later immigrated with his family to the United States in 1998. Talavik was a permanent resident who received a green card in 2005 and lived with his mother, father, and three sisters in Salt Lake City at the time. As a child, Talavik frequently spent time at the mall was described as the only place he went, which kind of gave me chills because I was yeah. like, he knew it front to back, all sides and corners. The family at one point lived one block away from the mall, so he really spent a lot of time at this mall. He had a record of minor juvenile incidents and had dropped out of high school at age 16. After the shooting, so he was, he was buried in his birthplace in Bosnia, um, March 2nd, 2007. His father, Sulu, I think. Uh -huh. um, he moved back to Bosnia and told media outlets that he was too sad and ashamed to stay living in a country where his son committed mass murder. 
Honestly, imagine your child doing something so horrific. I couldn't even, I wouldn't even know what to do. No, could you do this? Where did you go wrong, you know? And, and that's the thing is like, I think that influences outside of the home sometimes really can affect your decision making. And I, I can tell you now, no one knows why he did it. Really? So, of course, the media outlets and everybody's, like, hoarding their house. Like, yeah, trying to figure out who this kid is. Televik's aunt, Aka? Sorry, I these names are hard for me to pronounce. Anyway, so his aunt came out of the family's house, and she said, I have no idea why he attacked so many strangers. She said that he was such a good boy, I don't know what happened. And then his father, Sulo, guys, I don't know. It's S-U-L-J-O, but I think the J is silent. So, uh, Sulo? I don't want to offend, I just don't know how to pronounce it. His dad says, I think someone else is behind him telling him to do this, and I'm not sure. Really? I don't know. He, He's like, there has to be something else. And I'm not going to like, people were nervous about the culture of Muslims, you know? It was just a few years after 9-11. Honestly, yeah. they were looked at as uh, potentially dangerous people because everyone unfairly. was scared. Yes, unfairly. Everyone was scared, didn't know. Um, his dad's like, someone else put some thoughts into his head. There's no way he would have done this. He did say that authorities are guilty for not alerting us that he bought a gun in the U.S. You cannot buy cigarettes if you are underage, but you can buy a gun. Federal law prohibits the sale of handguns and handgun ammunition to those under 21 from federally licensed gun dealers, although some states allow 18 plus to purchase handguns through legal private sales. So where did he buy his gun? At a pawn shop. And he was 19. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in light of the war on terrorism and some commentators, including John Gibson and a U.S. representative, Chris Cannon, suggested that Talavik repeatedly shouted, like, religious quotes, I oh, guess. Really? Religious, like, sayings uh, during there, the video. Was their family super religious? I... It doesn't... Uh, he just says that they're Muslims. Oh. That's it. FBI agent Patrick Kiernan stated that he had no reason to suspect terrorism. So they're like, this is not related to terrorism at all. Um, oh, so are they saying that people were saying that he made it religious and they're saying that that's probably not the case? Yeah. I see. Okay. Yeah. So they got Some it. people were pointing fingers that it was religion motivated, but the FBI is like, no, <laughs> this is not the situation you think it is, you know? Um, his aunt did say, hold on a second, this yeah. is our religion, but we are not, we are not a part of that terrorism stuff. But there's still no definitive answer for his motive, but we know now mental illness is the biggest factor where he was in juvenile detention stuff. He dropped out of school at 16. He was a troubled kid, you yeah. know, and whether he had outside influences or not, he had to have had some kind of mental illness to be so totally just angry. And yeah. I think uh. what scares me the most is he went back to people, stood over them and shot them again. There was so much anger or turmoil or something in his mind right. and heart and he just didn't know what to do with it. And he was just like, everyone's going to suffer the consequences of whatever he's either dealt with or whatever he was kind of convinced was reality, you know? Right. But let's talk about the survivors and where they are yeah. recently. So Carolyn Tuft, remember her daughter passed away. Yes. 
she, in an interview with KUTV in 2019, so just a couple years ago, uh-huh. she still has more than 300 lead pellets in her body from the <gasps> shotgun. What? Yeah. She's actually currently slowly dying from lead poisoning what? from the bullets. Oh, that, that makes my whole body hurt. These are some quotes from her experience, okay? She said, I was looking around at the pink walls thinking, it's so weird I'm going to die on the floor of Trolley Square today. She said that her daughter was dead by 8.47 p.m., so it was three minutes from the time we parked the car and she Uh. was dead and I was bleeding to death. Carolyn says she does not favor total gun bans, but supports the idea of stronger background checks and red flag laws. 100%. Yeah. And I I believe believe the same thing. Background checks and red flags. If a young person's coming and buying assault weapons, (laughs) you know, or weapons in general, you might want to keep an eye on them. Right. Let's see. From the Salt Lake Tribune article in 2012, this is about Sean Munns. The spray from the blast left Munns with 75 to 100 pellets in his body, which require him to take a lead removal pill several times a day. Um, The medication has kept levels well contained, he says. You know, I never would have thought that, like, somebody who survived a gunshot wound could still suffer from the lead of it. I mean, I mean, I don't think they expect people to be shot with them and then have to survive with it afterwards. So I don't yeah. think they care too much about what's actually in the lead pellets. I just didn't think that that I actually happened. didn't think so either, yeah. I didn't know that happened. I just thought that, like, if, if you got shot and if it's still in your body, it's like, oh, that's kind of something weird. You'll see it in an x-ray. But yeah. not that it can still hurt you. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe uh, it's, like, unique to, like, shotgun pellets, though. Because, like, in the maybe. shotgun, it sprays all these all these little pellets. Oh, right. So, maybe it's just specific to that. I don't know if all gun... Uh, what are they called? Bullets? Bullets. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they're all made the same way with the same stuff to yeah. affect you later like that with everything. I don't know. Right. We don't know anything about guns, nope. but here we are talking We're about it. To... We'll look it up later. So, yeah, Sean says, I'm fine. I'm just a day-in, day-out kind of guy. Um, I know Sean Munns actually ended up meeting with Kenneth, the police officer that distracted Holovic. Yeah. He met with him. They didn't meet multiple times. It was just this one time so they could talk about their experience and kind of, like, get closure in a way. Yeah. But I thought that was kind of cool that yeah. Kenneth and... Sean met up and talked things through. That that would be really hard. Yeah. I, I could see how some people, like, for them needing to heal, they're like, I'm just, I'm not gonna revisit that ever again. And where some people, like that, you know, they're like, you know, actually, let's, let's talk about it. Get closure, like you said. So. Yeah. I think that something you just really don't know how you're gonna handle. So it's true. not every day that there's, you know, a shooting in your neighborhood or in your school or mall or whatever it is or church even I mean it happens frequently in the U.S. which is its own horrible thing but for it to happen to you you just never think it's going to happen and then when it does you don't know how one if you can survive it or two how you will deal with the survival of that you know it's it's traumatizing I'm sure I'm sure everyone just deals with that trauma differently and I guess Sean and he even said like Um, I was reading one of the articles. He said, like, I got off way better than some others. And so he's like, I'm just counting my blessings. Live it, live life day by day, and I'm okay. I'm not going to dwell on it. Um, So Stacey Hansen, who was shot by that glass wall, Uh from the Salt Lake Tribune article in 2012, Stacey is now a paraplegic. He is healthy and relatively pain-free. 
in May 2011, he had to have a back surgery to remove scar tissue, readjust his pain medication, pump, and separate nerves that had grown together. Wow. Um, he was, there were, you know, times where he was rushed to the emergency room every couple weeks with infections and nearly killed him. Serious? But Stacy recognizes how far he has come, mostly because his wife Colleen won't let him forget. You know, she continues to help him. Were they married at the time? Yes. Okay. Stacy refers to Colleen as the glue that keeps the family together and credits her with saving his life in the dark days immediately following Trolley Square. When he lost the will to live, Colleen smuggled their chihuahua Popeye into the intensive care just to make him laugh. Oh, isn't that cute? That's so cute. He says, quote, She's been my constant reality check when I start to get depressed or too self-absorbed. She calls me on it because she's tough. Aww. So he's doing okay. Obviously life-altering changes, but he's trying to look up and he yeah. has an awesome wife that's helping him through it. Which, thank goodness. Right? So last but not least, Alan, AJ Walker. So he's the 16-year-old. Whose dad was um, shot twice. The first one that was yeah, killed, in right? Yep. Yeah. In a different Salt Lake Tribune interview with Peggy Fletcher Stack in 2016 with AJ and his mom, Vicki, AJ said, I spent 10 days in intensive care, 10 days in a regular hospital ward, and about 10 days in rehab. So about a month altogether in the hospital. Um, I had to learn to speak, read, write, and comprehend all over again. Wow. A teacher from my high school came by three days a week through the summer and into my senior year to help me with my classes. She brought flashcards and pictures of animals and foods on one side with the names on the other side. Who's this teacher? I she know. deserves uh, everything. I know, right? Like, Aww. I feel like teachers really just do not get the credit they deserve. Because no. this is amazing. In so many cases, I recognized the items, but I could not find the words. I lost short-term memory, organizational skills. Balance continues to be an issue. I graduated from high school and was going to attend uh, Salt Lake Community College, but realized how unprepared I was. So I got a job at a credit union as a sales rep. Okay. Uh, sometimes I had to call my mom and ask her how to count. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, when I was 20, I took some classes classes at Westminster College. He also went on a mission, an oh. LDS mission. Really? Served an LDS mission in San Diego, California, Spanish speaking. Wow, he that said, had to have been hard to learn. <laughs> yeah, he said he loved the MTC. He loved yeah. it. He was. He said that growing up, he wasn't super spiritual. He was just like, whatever. I'm going to church. Whatever. Yeah, it's just something that you had to do every week. Yeah, but he really found, you know, his belief in the gospel of the LDS Church in the MTC. He said, I not only had to relearn English, but I had to learn Spanish, which was its own huge obstacle, you yeah. know? I feel like that'd be really overwhelming, you know? Yeah. Like, it, I don't know, I just, I'm trying to put myself in his shoes where I'm like, if I had to relearn English... And then they're like, okay, now learn Spanish. <laughs> I'd be like, no. <laughs> like, I just learned one. I know. You know, like, let me sit on this for a bit. Yeah. I think he just learned a whole new meaning to life, I yeah. think. Okay. 
So uh, Peggy, the interviewer, asked, were you alert during the shooting? And he says, the whole time. It was horrible. I remember everything. I remember him shooting, me running away. It was the worst feeling I've ever felt in my life. So dark and consuming and evil. After I had been shot, I ran for the underground parking. There were people in a car who saw me. I cried for help, but they were scared, so they ran off. Thank you. Help! Don't run away! I know! So I started to run through the garage to find a place to hide. I thought he was chasing me and I heard another gunshot, which was the second gunshot on my dad. So I fell to the ground between two cars to hide. Once I realized I couldn't hide, I said a quick prayer, give me peace, give me peace. Just then another car pulled up and I jumped in and said, we need to go, we need to call the police. I couldn't feel the left side of my head. I felt like I had a hole in my head, blood everywhere. The girls in the car knew it was bad. They took me around the north side of the trolley to an ambulance. Intense, holy oh crap. I'm like, I feel like I'm on the verge of tears right I know. now. <laughs> well, can you imagine Ugh. like being in this situation the intense fear you don't know what's going on mm -hmm. you are so scared and he did not know the second gunshot was to his dad he was like i gotta get out of here i gotta get help oh my gosh it's and he's so young yeah 16 years old and how do you know what to do like <laughs> I, would, I would just be like a mess i would have no yeah. idea <laughs> vicky also commented on this she said i was living in our south jordan dream house but eventually lost the house in 2008 housing collapse i came home one friday to find an eviction notice on my door so i had to get out the day i moved people in my mormon ward showed up to help me back and move my stuff then i rented a house in sugar house it was hard but overall the move has been been good then i was hit by a drunk driver which later required knee replacements and she also lost her insurance this girl can't catch oh a break she's peggy also asked an, a different question what do you think about the gunman suleiman talovic today aj said i don't have either negative or positive feelings towards him i do have a sense of sadness but no anger and i forgive him i mean i feel like you'd hope that you could just forgive and forget but I would think it'd be especially hard for the victims to not have closure of why he did it. Right. That's how I would feel. I'd be like, what What caused you to go to this place that you've known forever, totally abolish people's families? Like, how? Yeah. Ugh. I don't know. I don't understand. I can't believe, I can't even try to understand, like, the mentality of someone who goes and shoots up a place full of people, and so heartlessly, too. Like, he was just right. so... Angry. Angry. It's just, I I don't know what happened to him, or what caused him to feel so much hatred, but holy crap. Vicky said, I saw a photo of his funeral in Bosnia, and a shot of him from above lying in a casket. I was shocked at how young he was. He was only a boy and I thought I want to hate you I should hate you but I don't have it in me if I had an ounce of hate there would be no energy left to build a new life for us full of a full and joyful wow yeah like the to be able to feel sadness not anger and also forgiving him is right. insanely strong but I I feel like you know when you go through something so horrible and then the aftermath of that is man it takes yeah. a lot but that is the story of the 2007 trolley square mass shooting you know I remember that when I was in the seventh grade and I remember hearing about this and I don't know if you remember this because of that shooting do you remember our junior high had the theater kids act out a shooting <laughs> It traumatized me. Me too. It still does. Yeah. To this day, I still, whenever I go into a building or into like a crowded public place, I feel like I am now trained 
to look for my exits, which is, yeah. I guess, a good thing. But also, too, I know where that fear came from, though. Yeah. I guess it's okay because now, like, if something were to happen, at least I have that in the back of my mind of where to go. But it also causes a lot of anxiety. Yeah. And even, like, shot blanks into the lockers. Fake blood, even. I do remember that. Where were you? What class were you? I was in Miss Putnam's class. I, so science. Yeah. I was in the PE locker rooms. Oh my gosh. So we were, <laughs> so they had the, in this drill, I remember we were all crouched down in the locker room. So it was the girls and the boys and a different one, right? Mm -hmm. But they were training you how to close the door, lock out the window so it, no one could see into the classroom or wherever you were, mm -hmm. and then do not open the door for anyone. Yep. And you could hear these theater kids pounding on the door saying, let me in, let me in, Like, let me help in. me, help me. Yep. And I cried because I, I was like, I don't want to be a part of this. This is so scary. Because like, it just made me feel like it was bound to happen at any time. Having these drills for something so scary, like mm -hmm. I understand the reason and right. like to have people prepared, but it's still terrifying. <laughs> I I honestly kind of feel like I'm just going to get killed in <laughs> any situation I'm in. I hate walking down the street by myself. Uh, I hate being by myself in an area I don't recognize. I always feel like I'm ready to be murdered in some way. Yeah. So that's like you're why hyper aware of what's going on. <laughs> yeah, but I do kind of relate to those like memes where it's like, ah, I eat cake, but like no one's gonna be taking me into their van. <laughs> no one's gonna pick me up and throw me in their car. So anyway, that's that's my story. It's really sad. Are we? In you know, I actually changed plans. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we were gonna go somewhere, but it was like really far, and I was like, eh, we'll just go to my second idea place because here's the thing with my story it's a very broad location okay and I was having the hardest time deciding where to take you and this is the place I decided first and I was like no I'll go here because it's better and I was like no and then when we started driving I was like yeah we'll go to the first place so we changed direction yeah little kind of kind of where is this I don't even recognize this area you know <laughs> you don't know <laughs> Uh, the map says that it, well, when we got off the freeway, we were in Ogden. No. Dude, I don't even know. But we're headed to Hooper. You ever heard of Hooper? No. Neither. <laughs> uh, I was trying to read a sign. <laughs> it doesn't say where we are. Are we currently in Hooper? The map's not helping. <laughs> no. I don't know what city we're in, actually. We're going to Hooper, which is west of Kaysville? Oh, okay. This. Can we see Lagoon back there? Yeah, Farmington, Keysville yes. area. Yes. So we're going just west of that. Well, it's a cute farm place. Yeah. Farms yeah. everywhere, horses. It is really cute. You know, I like my neighborhood because it was like surrounded by farmland, and now they're building apartment buildings all over it. It makes me so sad. Oh, um, Hooper City. I found yeah. a sign. We're in Hooper. Uh, so this is it. Where are we going, though? I mean, we're going to that little red dot on my map. Oh, you know what kind of sucks? Is it's pretty smoky. Yeah, it does kind of suck. So is this place we're going to haunted? Like, is the place itself haunted? We're going to go look at a place that is haunted. Okay. I'll tell you in a minute. Okay. When we get to the end of this road, I'll give you a hint. This is the road that gets closest to the Salt Lake. Okay. Are we going on the bumpy road? Yeah, I guess. It doesn't say trespassing, does it? Okay. <laughs> Hopefully there's Mitch. nothing important down there. <laughs> Don't tell Mitch. Okay. We'll just should be right here. You know, this is fine. Right okay. Here. This is fine. It's actually just... Okay, let's hear it. There's a cornfield. There's going to be children of the corn popping out of here any second now. 
I'm just making sure I know where I am. This is a story about the ghost of Jean Baptiste. Jean Baptiste. Jean Baptiste. <laughs> Some people call him John. Inaccurate. But how... Representation of his name. Yeah. So, okay. Let's talk about Jean Baptiste. Okay. So I'll tell you, I'll give you a heads up that with my story, there's a lot of characters leading up to the main character, Jean Baptiste. Our first character is Henry Heath. He was a member of the Salt Lake City Police Force, and he was involved in several cases that painted the picture of an underdeveloped legal system in the West. There was a gang called the Hounds, and they were led by William Hickman, aka Wild Bill. Are these like a biker gang, or is this like a ride on horses gang? Um, uh, they probably rode on horses. I'll get there. Okay. So <laughs> it's the West? It's the West. Okay. I guess I could tell you. It was in 1860s. 1860. I have no knowledge of what that might look like. <laughs> <laughs> well, people rode on wagons. Oh, okay. And there's horses. There weren't cars yet. So, if you just say Wild Wild West with cowboys. Wiki Wiki Wild Wiki Wild 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 West. Jim West. Desperado. Desperado. Do you remember when Will Smith tried to be a rapper? He didn't try. He succeeded. Did he? We just... I don't know. Okay, go ahead. Mm -mm -mm -mm. So William Hickman, aka Wild Bill, was the leader of the Hounds, the gang. And Henry Heath is a police officer. Just imagine Old Wild West before Utah's even a state. So Heath had to deal with this gang regularly. And the Hounds were known to steal cattle from the army at Camp Floyd and sell them to the Mormons and vice versa. So like they were making money by stealing cows from both groups and selling them to both groups. And like, oh darn, you lost your cows. Well, now I have some. Yeah. <laughs> so it caused a lot of drama between the, the army and the Mormons. And then this police officer, Henry Heath, was like, <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> this is really frustrating. <laughs> right. Right. So on January 17th of 1862... Porter Rockwell, a bounty hunter, turned in two hounds named Moroni Clausen and John P. Smith. Okay. Both of these guys had warrants out for their arrest for being involved in an ambush attack against a fleeing former governor, John W. Dawson. So the governor was fleeing. The governor was fleeing, and side story is that he, so he was governor for only three weeks. Uh-huh. Okay, hold on. Backstory. Oh. So <laughs> back then, Utah was not... A state. It was a territory. Okay. Brigham Young was like the head honcho of the state, basically. Like he was like the leader of almost everybody here. Mm -hmm. But back east, they were like, "We need you guys to have a governor. You guys need to be regulated somehow." Okay. And they didn't. They didn't want Brigham Young to be it because of church and state, right? So they were like, "Okay, well, let's send out a governor." They could not keep governors in this area what because. What were they doing to these guys? Well, let me tell you exactly about what happened with John W. Dawson. Okay. So he became governor, uh -huh. and while in the three weeks that he lasted here, there was a, a widow, somebody, a lady, I guess her husband died, and he made an advance towards her, and she flipped out, and now all these Mormon guys were going to go kill the governor. Nobody really knows what happened other than them two. Yeah. It's like, she said this, he said that, but everybody believes her. Yeah. And he was the new guy. So yeah, it's it it's so hard when it's a he said she said because you just don't know because you want to believe. I mean, obviously you don't want to victim shame or whatever, mm -hmm. but you also just really don't know what happened. Mm -hmm. So it's hard. But like they're all yeah. gunning for this guy, and so he. So did the same thing happen with all the other governors? Or so a lot of it was that they just couldn't handle the the church. Ah. Uh. Because they had their own laws or their mm -hmm. own... And so a lot of them just couldn't last. And, like, huh. 
I read about at least four different governors in like a five year time frame. Wow. <laughs> so anyway, <clears throat> so okay. both of these guys had warrants out for their arrest for being involved in an ambush attack against a fleeing former governor, John W. Dawson. Okay. Newspaper articles state that Clausen and Smith were resisting arrest and ran from the police officers and were shot while trying to flee. After Clausen's death, no family or friends came to claim his body. Henry Heath took it upon himself, so the police officer guy, mm -hmm. like, he took it upon himself to go buy Moroni Clausen a suit to be buried in and to pay for his burial expenses, and he was buried in the Potter's Field of Salt Lake City Cemetery. And okay. I did not find any information of why he did that for Moroni, and he didn't do it for John Smith. Because they both died? Both of them died at the same time. Both of them had the same warrants out for their arrests, but Henry Heath did that for Clausen, but not John. Hmm. Weird, huh? Why would Henry do that? Was he just a really nice guy or was out of guilt? Hmm. So Porter Rockwell, he later said, he was the guy that turned them in to the right. police officers. So he said that when he turned over Clausen and Smith to the four police officers, he walked away to go tend his horse and he heard gunshots. Mm -hmm. He went back and he was later quoted saying, they were powder burnt and one of them was shot in the face. So how could they have been running away? Right. So he doesn't really think that was the true story, but there's no information. Something shady was happening there. Yeah. Moroni and Smith were killed in January of 1862, and a few days or maybe even a week later, Moroni's brother George heard what had happened and came to the Salt Lake City Cemetery and asked for his brother's body to be exhumed so that they could bury him with his family. But upon exhuming his body, they found Moroni was stripped completely naked and he was face down in his casket. How disrespectful. Right, so George is furious. He originally planned on having Moroni's body moved to a different part of the Salt Lake City Cemetery to be near their mom who had passed away years before. Yeah. But seeing this, he was like, we are not keeping him here. I'm going to take him to, uh, there's a, it's called, I don't know, I wrote it down. It's a place in Draper. He's oh. like, I'm going to take him somewhere like near our house. Like, I'm not That's keeping him here. messed up. Yeah, so he was relocating Moroni to that cemetery, and according to an article I found on www.jenny.com, there was an article written by Neil Clausen, who might be a relative oh. of Moroni, because his last name's the same, and is on a genealogy website. So possibly. Yeah, I'm just guessing. Um, Neil Clausen wrote an article on www.jenny.com saying Henry Heath had paid a visit to Willow Creek Cemetery, which is where Moroni was re relocated, and Henry Heath was verbally attacked by George about the way his brother was buried. Henry Heath was confused because he explained that he was the one who bought his suit and paid for his burial expenses, so he had nothing to do with it, first of all, and as far as he knew, he was taken care of, like, 100%. Yeah. So he said, he's like, I promise, dude, like, I didn't have anything to do with it, I don't know what happened, but I'm going to go back to Salt Lake City and I'm going to open an investigation because okay. you're right, this is not okay. So Henry Heath, he returned to Salt Lake City just as he promised and went straight to the cemetery and spoke to the cemetery sexton. And the sexton explained that the last person to see Moroni before he was buried would have been the cemetery's grave digger, Jean-Baptiste. <laughs> <laughs> it's all coming together. <laughs> he is a criminal of opportunity. Hmm. Not much is known about Jean. So people who knew him said that he kept changing his story of, like, where he was from. Some people said that he told them he was from Germany. Some people said France. Some people said Italy. Some people said uh, Ireland was another one. Hmm. Nobody really knows because he kept changing it up. But in the 1860 census, 
so two years before this all happened. He put that he was born in Ireland in 1813. That make him about 49 years old at the time of the story, but it's honestly nobody really knows. I have to say, side note, completely mm -hmm. unrelated. It kind of blows my mind that 1813 is a real year. Were people even writing things down then? <laughs> paper or do they have, you know? Yeah, it's like cloth. <laughs> yeah. Leaves. <But> like, <laughs> what cloth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay. Anyway, I got it. So we know that Jean lived in Australia and worked as a gold miner and grave digger until the until April of 1855. In that year, he converted to the LDS Church and boarded the Tarquinia, an LDS immigration ship. Hmm. He arrived in Hawaii about two months later, and, and he his... came to Utah. Yeah, I know. Either one, they didn't let him stay. <laughs> like maybe the Hawaiians <laughs> were just like. No. You can't be here. Like, you were here just to go to your next spot. Yeah. Like, you're not... <laughs> you can't sit with us. But anyway, so after he went to Hawaii, then he made his way to San Francisco by February of the next year. So he at least stayed in Hawaii from July to February. Hmm. Or July to whenever he left to go to San Francisco. Okay. He made it to San Francisco, um, not sure exactly the year, but then he lived there for a few years and moved to Salt Lake City by 1859. He built a house near the Salt Lake City Cemetery and married his wife wife, Dorothy Jensen. It said that John was one of the first employees of the Salt Lake City Cemetery. Um, there were reports of locals seeing John working in the cemetery late at night and wearing the clothes of their deceased relatives. What in the freak? Yeah, but nobody took it seriously. No one actually took it seriously, and Henry Heath was aware of these claims, but was like, well, how am I going to prove that? You know? Right. Like, how do you investigate? Like, you know, what are you going to do? Like, walking around town or walking around the cemetery? The cemetery. Late oh, at night. that is spooky. I know. Late at night wearing... Yeah. Uh, so, Henry, he's knew about this, um, but now knowing about Moroni's body, he was like, now I know how this is connecting, because how did this guy end up naked? The police set up a secret surveillance outside of the cemetery one night and watched as Jean worked. They noticed that he was transporting a large object using a wheelbarrow, and the police decided to approach Jean. Officers found Jean was transporting a naked, deceased corpse. And of course, this is not protocol. <laughs> like, no. why would he be moving a body with a wheelbarrow? It's said that as soon as the officers asked about the body, Jean fell to his knees crying and begging for his life. Jean was immediately arrested and sent to jail. Heath went to Jean's home to speak to his wife and to search his home. But upon entering Jean's home, Heath couldn't help but notice what looked like clothing being used as drapes and furniture covers. What? <laughs> and there were boxes lining the walls, overflowing with old clothing. And in Jean's basement, he had a vat set up so he could boil the clothing for sanitary reasons. Ew! Uh, he made them into drapes mm -hmm. and furniture, furniture covers? Uh-huh. That is the most... Like, imagine walking into that house and just seeing that and saying, what kind of weird shit. <laughs> right? And, okay, I'm just gonna spoil it now. The wife was never arrested either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was she just, like, down for that? Did she, like, like that she got to sew them together and, like, make things out of them? Put buttons on them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> yeah. Where'd you get all this fabric? Yeah. I don't know. Where'd you get all these clothes from? Nowhere that I could find is her side of what happened. So she, you don't know if she knew where they came from. I don't know anything about her, her, her stuff. I just know that later on she remarried and moved away. Weird, huh? So it appears that John was indeed a grave robber. <laughs> no. <laughs> what? That's the next bullet. <laughs> Doesn't take a genius. No. So here's where it gets kind of sad. Heath's heart sank 
as he thought about his own daughter, Sarah, because <gasps> she passed away earlier that year and she was only nine years old. And he wondered, did her grave also get robbed? I would not be able to contain myself. So while in jail, Jean confessed to robbing graves for at least three years of his employment at the Salt Lake City Cemetery. He admitted that he robbed graves back in Australia too, and claimed that he used the money from that to build a local LDS church. But many believe that he was just trying to butter up Brigham Young, because at the time Brigham Young was the guy who was going to decide what happened to Was him. he a judge? He wasn't the judge, but he was the guy in charge. Court documents later said, well, we did a trial, which by the way, you cannot find the court records for this. They are gone. How does that happen? I don't know, but it's so frustrating, because I'm like, why? That just tells me that there was something up, something wrong about but it. <sighs> People who knew what happened at the time, they're like, yeah, so they, they did a trial. There was a judge, but by the suggestion of Brigham Young, this is what happened next. So he said that he robbed graves in Australia to pay for an LDS church. Mm -hmm. But people are like, no, he didn't. Because he, he converted right before he moved from Australia. Jean confessed to about a dozen graves that he had robbed, but investigators knew that this was not even close to true. They took the boxes of clothing to the city hall and laid them out so family members could come and identify the clothing, other loved ones, and it was recorded that Jean had robbed over 300 graves. Oh my gosh. Some speculate on his crimes wondering if it was more than just robbing graves, because why did he keep their clothing if it wasn't for monetary gain? Like, he's not selling their clothes. Why oh, were they trophies? They were trophies. Why would he need them? What a they freak. wondered if he was involved in necrophilia. The possibility of necrophilia was not investigated because of the time period mixed with the conservative views of the Mormon community. Oh, it's not possible. AKA, people just didn't want to know. I mean, honestly. You wouldn't want to know, I but it's also like, yeah. make sure though that he's getting the, like, he's getting punished for his crimes. Right. That's my take on it. Because grave robbing is one thing, but like. That's worse That's a me. whole nother realm of yes. crime. So it's not proven, but the signs definitely point that way because um, some families decided to exhume some of their loved ones to reclothe them, mm -hmm. and they were found naked and face down. Yeah, why would he put them face down? Ooh. He took Jean to the cemetery and pointed to each grave site, and Jean was to answer yes or no if he had robbed that grave. Uh -huh. Then they reach Sarah Melissa Heath. Born February 3rd, 1852, and died April 9th, 1861, Heath asked John, did you rob this grave? With a pause, John responded, no. And Heath later admits that he was 100% going to kill John on the spot if he had answered differently. I would have too. Yeah, and he's like, no, 100%, I was going to break his neck. This is how all the families felt. You know, this is how they felt towards John because of what he had done. Yeah. So Jean was not safe in jail either, because even inmates were threatening to kill him. Yeah. And there was a lynch mob outside. Brigham Young was the acting governor at the time, since, you know, the other dude fled before this all happened. He felt that the death penalty was too severe of a crime, and he knew John wouldn't last very long in jail either. It was decided to banish him to Miller's Island, which is now Fremont Island, which you can't see it now because it's smoky, but it was right in front of us. It was, we could see it when we parked, but it's right out there. Okay. Island. Before they sent him away, they tattooed for robbing the dead onto his forehead. And that was so that if he tried to run or escape, like, he literally couldn't escape, like, his crimes. Because yeah. people could see what he did. Interesting. Right? 
That was uh, Brigham Young's idea. Which I'm like, doesn't Brigham Young think that tattoos are bad? So he's also like tattooing someone, yeah, you know? that's weird. Anyway. But Henry Miller, which is one of the owners of Miller's Island, he was granted authority to transport Jean by wagon to Antelope Island and then by boat to Miller's Island in May of 1862. Okay. Some sources said weeks later, some said months later, the Millers went back to the island to check on their cattle, because that's what they did there. They just kept all their cattle there. And they found a dead heifer, and the Miller cabin was torn apart. And Jean was nowhere to be found. What? Yep. It's believed that he used pieces of the cabin to build a makeshift raft and used the hide from the heifer as rope to tie the boards together. Did it work, or did he drown? Still to this day, no one knows what happened. So he took apart the cabin. So I definitely would say he built a boat. Mm-hmm. And he killed a heifer. And like they said that the way that it was killed, like he, he took out strips of its hide. Okay, then totally. That's yeah. what he did. But where he ended up is unknown? Unknown. Okay. To this day, evidence of the raft has never been found. And they haven't found the body of Jean-Baptiste. Some believe he made his way to Montana to work in the mines. Other believe he drowned is now haunting the Great Salt Lake. Ooh. Did, I mean, did they search the lake? I don't know if they did back then. Dang, how much is it to search a lake? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll talk about the lake more in a second. There have been sightings of a man walking along the southern shore of the Great Salt Lake holding wet, soiled clothing. He's usually seen when the lake looks very misty. Like, it's very weird. Like, that's, like, his setting. It's, like, if, it, if it's very misty, that's when you'll usually see him. He needs a vibe. <laughs> Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's not going to come to the party unless the vibe's right. Exactly. Gotcha. And what he does is he shows up to the party in this mist, and then once you see him, then he will just turn and walk away, and he'll just disappear into the mist. So dramatic. And that's it. That's the only sightings of him, is that it's always when it's misty, and you'll see him, and as soon as you do, he just starts walking away and he disappears. Interesting. Right? Dang. Is smoke and mist the same thing? No. Nope. <laughs> Well, we're not going to see him today. Not today. So what, what do you think happened to Jean, if you were to guess? Do you I think he? Do you think he could have... If he had that tattooed on his forehead, and if he escaped, couldn't he just wear a hat? Yeah. Or a bandana? Yeah, he could have hidden the tattoo, I think. But what are the chances he made it all the way to the following shore to get off the island with the boat he makeshifted? Yeah. Do you want to know my theory? Yeah. So the Great Salt Lake is known to have a Loch Ness in it. And water babies. What? <laughs> yeah. So maybe he was lured to the water. Or maybe he was out in the water and then eaten by the Loch Ness. As he should have. Do you want to hear about the Loch Ness? Yeah. So in July of 1877, which is exactly 15 years after Jean went missing. 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 Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he went missing because the vibe was right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so 15 years after he went away, the Salt Lake City Herald newspaper wrote about a group of men who were working at the Barnes & Company Salt Works one evening when they saw a large, monstrous creature with the body of an alligator and the head of a horse. The head of a horse on an alligator? Yeah, they said it, they said it was a giant creature that looked like it had the body of an alligator and the head of a horse. Like silhouette-wise or like literally? Literally gross that that's it, fake news it, it's like one of those like books where like you know you can change the head and the body yeah. like interchange yeah. it <laughs> they that, just did that yeah this looks about right <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that's what happened 
So it came out of the water, saw them, made a big, deep bellowing noise, and then chased them up the hill. And the men were so afraid that they just hid there until morning. As soon as the sun came up, they, you know, they looked around like, hey, it's gone. So they went over to the water where it came out of the water to look around and see if they saw, like, footprints and stuff. They said that the dirt was all broken up, hmm. like it had come out of the water. They also said that a big boulder was overturned. So whatever it was, was huge. Yeah. So, mm, 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 mm. so the tracks were alligator tracks? They didn't say. They just said large tracks from the monster. When you did the Moon Lake story, didn't it, didn't they say it looked, how did it, do you remember what the? Yeah, they said it was like a dinosaur with flipper-like feet. Hmm. So it makes you wonder. I remember how I was telling you about how like. The tunnels. The tunnels. Yeah. I believe it. Me too. I'm convinced. That's why it's my theory. Okay. <laughs> Um, but real quick, so a man named J.H. McNeil described this creature as being about 75 feet long. I don't know how to reference that, but it seems big. Yeah, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so after some digging, I found another sighting that happened before Jean-Baptiste. Okay. The story came from 1840. A man named Brother Bainbridge was on Antelope Island and saw something swimming in the water. It never surfaced, but he said that looking into the water, it looked like a dolphin was swimming in the water. So, like, hmm. and the thing is, too, is that Salt Lake doesn't have fish in it. It doesn't have crap. It has brine shrimp and salt. Yeah, so, you know, early natives, they believe that this lake is a home to water babies, uh, which we learned about that in episode one. So maybe it's possible that Jean heard a baby crying, went looking, and then was pulled down to the bottom to never be seen from again. I wonder if the water babies and the Loch Ness monster work together maybe. to wreak havoc. On like the Loch Ness is like Gru and <laughs> the babies the are minions. <laughs> yes. You know, they don't have horrible intentions, but you are in their territory. So The exact dynamic is Gru and the minions. Yes. Don't mess with. Tricky. Yeah. <laughs> That's my story of the ghost of Jean-Baptiste. Man, I want to see him. That's why I gave you a dirty t-shirt, too. Yeah, but why? Because <laughs> he, he... Oh, because he, he stole clothes from the graves. Oh, it's so sad. Isn't it? Like, how... Like, before they were buried, though? Mm-hmm. He was a grave digger, so he, like, dug the hole. And then, I guess, when nobody was looking, he just did his thing. And then put the body in. Because he was the last person to ever see them. Yeah. Yuck. That's upsetting. Don't you wonder how how often it is that people that sign up for those kinds of jobs, like, they totally take advantage of their opportunity to do something disgusting and awful? Because what are the odds that they're going to be exhumed? Right. Know? Ugh. Yeah. And I guess grave robbing is was a big thing in Europe, and Jean is from possibly Europe, so maybe that's where he got his ideas from, you He's know? like, all the graves here are picked through, so... <laughs> Gotta go somewhere yeah. else. You know, I hope that he was drugged to the depths of Salt Lake and eaten by a Loch Ness monster. I hope so. I think that's fair. I think it's fair. Totally fair. Yeah, it's a circle of life, even. Yeah. <laughs> the Loch Ness monster is like a sidestep on the <laughs> on the food yep. chain. He's over there with like Bigfoot. Don't you wonder if they just have like meetings? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like someone saw me today. I didn't mean to, but. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like in Harry Potter when they go to the, the magic prison. Well, Wasn't they, that a part? If, I don't know. <laughs> but I do think that mythical or legend things, mm -hmm. they have to have monthly meetings. Probably. Well, that's episode two. So, Thank thanks. you and wel welcome. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Yep. You, yep. 
Oh man, we are we are thankful you made it this far. If you did, if you didn't, that's all right. That's all right. We'll see you next time, or we won't, or we won't, and we understand. <laughs> <laughs> but until next time, we'll see you later. And thanks for listening. Oh, make sure you like us, and make sure you <laughs> listen. Share again. us. <laughs> and listen. Yep. Is there anything else? No. Okay. Mm, okay. Bye. Okay. Mm, bye.